welcome to our third whiskeymentary on the Neat Glass Sponsored Whiskey Tangent Podcast. I'm Scott. And I'm Ed. And if you recall, our previous whiskeymentaries about prohibition and sourcing were released in January of 2020 and 2021, respectively. This year, we're building on that tradition and exploring a completely new whiskey-related topic, possibly one of the most polarizing in the entire whiskey community, the secondary market. This is part one of three, wherein we'll discuss what the secondary market is, how it came to be, and how it's morphed into what some say is the dominant driving force behind why we pay what we pay for our drams. But before we can begin to explain the secondary market, you first have to know about the primary market. And Ed's here to get us started by telling us about the American liquor industry's three-tiered system of distilling, distribution, and dollar-dollar bills, y'all. Thank you, Scott. Uh, we love doing the whiskey It's a little bit of a treat for ourselves. We're thinkers by nature, and we like to examine things around us, especially things that we're passionate about, and we're passionate about whiskey. We're also naughty by nature. Hey, ho, hip-hop, hooray, crickets. So, (laughs) the three-tier system in America is a system for distributing alcoholic beverages that was set up in the United States after the repeal of Prohibition. In 1933, the 18th Amendment was repealed by the 21st Amendment. Yeah. You might remember from our first whiskey yes, that alcohol was outlawed in the United States Ooh. from 1919 until 1933. <laughs> and Section 2 of that 21st Amendment mm-hmm. specifies that the power to control alcohol resides with the states, mm. leaving each state to decide when and how to repeal prohibition. And we reviewed many times when they didn't do it right. <laughs> right. But what came out of that is this thing that we call the three-tier system. Mm. And they are, first of all, the importers or the producers of alcoholic beverages, the distributors, those who receive the product from the producers, and then the retailers who sell it to the consumer. Now, producers would include brewers, winemakers, distilleries, and importers. And the three-tier system is intended to prohibit something that's called tide houses in the UK, Mm. uh, but basically to prevent a monopoly or disorderly marketing conditions. In the UK, there was a situation where if a major brewer or distillery was in an area, they would go out and buy the pubs, and then for miles, you could only drink their beer or only drink their scotch. And so that became a problem. They really didn't fix it. We fixed it over here. Yeah. To avoid the problems that they have with that. Right. Okay? So each state is allowed to produce their own three-tier system in a way that suits them. Mm. And some states choose to become alcoholic beverage control jurisdictions after prohibition. So in other words, they became like in charge of alcohol in their state and made all these prohibitive rules. We see this a lot in like Mississippi and some of the states that came out of prohibition very late. And then a number of the states have inserted themselves into the process of the three-tier system. Right. For example, Pennsylvania yeah. controls both the distribution arm and the retail arm. Right. So every state in the union has a three-tier system in place by law, except for Washington state. They're the only one that you can actually negotiate directly with producers. Oh, However- really? Yes. Yes. So um, no distributor, middlemen. No. Oh. No, well, there are. Okay. Because you'll have to, there's nothing legally binding anyone to follow a three-tier system in Washington State. It pretty much exists de facto in about 85% of the circumstances. Okay. But you can negotiate directly with producers for discounts and pricing for large amounts and stuff like that. Okay. States have various exemptions, the most prevalent one being the case of a brew pub, which is simultaneously a producer and a retailer and has no um, requirement to sell to a distributor because basically they make it in the back and they sell it in the front. Right. right. Um, Liquor in the back, poker in the front. 
<laughs> some states allow an entity to have a part in the tier system, letting small breweries act as their own distributor. For example, many states permit wineries to sell bottles of wine yes. on site to customers right. after a tour of such, but they're governed by how much? Sure, sure. Um, Beer brewers too. Right. Yeah. Now, usually, producers will give a distributor exclusive rights to market their product within a geographical area so that there, for example, will not be two distributors of Anheuser-Busch beer competing against each other in the same town. Right. A similar use of the three-tier system can be found in the enforcement of tobacco products, for example. And it's believed that they're moving that way towards recreational marijuana sales. In Massachusetts already, they've developed a three-tier system to uh, regulate recreational marijuana. Okay. And also, once again, to improve the ability to collect taxes on it. Yes, of course. All right. So that's a three-tier system. It's simply laws that govern the producers, the distributors, and the retailers. Right. And the way that's maneuvered state by state definitely affects the availability, the pricing, and um, our happiness, basically. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. The other thing that affects our pricing has become the secondary market. The whole reason why we're doing this whiskey entry. Well, it's also the, I'm sorry to interrupt, the secondary okay. market bleeding into the primary market, uh, right? Yes. Right. So there's and secondary market, but then it's kind of, you know, filtered its way down into the primary market, which we're going to talk about a lot. And also the concept of hoarding and the concept of price gouging. Sure. All these things are going to be explored in this whiskey entry. Yes. So I have a history of the secondary market, how it came to be, and then we'll get into some of the things that we were just talking about. Outstanding. All right. We've talked on here before about the bourbon doldrums of the 70s, 80s, and 90s when American whiskey wasn't nearly as popular as it is today. And in fact, the industry had to be bolstered by selling bottles overseas, particularly to the Japanese market, as we discussed in our Japanese episodes. Kirishiwa. (laughs) Yeah. Kanpai. As whiskey declined, American drinkers of this era had become enamored with cocktails made of vodka, tequila, and gin. The U.S. wine and craft beer industries were hitting their stride, and all the while, those sad old bottles of bourbon sat on shelves, ignored, gathering dust. But it wasn't long before these dusties became the fuel that fired a revolution. Quietly, steadily, but seemingly overnight, America's taste for liquor shifted, and the rise of bourbon's popularity in the late 2000s through the early 2010s coincided with a rise of social media platforms where impassioned groups of all sorts could gather virtually and geek out about their favorite TV shows, movies, and music. And whiskey enthusiasts were no different. Although eBay was an early place for bourbon nerds to buy and sell bottles, it was really Reddit, Craigslist, and especially Facebook that made it even easier. In fact, Facebook is probably the number one reason why the prices of coveted, hard-to-find bottles have skyrocketed in the past decade, with groups literally named Bourbon Secondary Market, aka BSM. And so, suddenly bottles that distillers were releasing at reasonable MSRPs were going for hundreds and eventually even thousands of dollars in the unregulated new black market for whiskey. Take Pappy Van Winkle, which we'll talk much more about in part three. You might be surprised to know that it wasn't even a thing until 1994, when their 20-year expression was first released for about $80, which at the time was an extraordinary price to pay for bourbon. Seriously. But today, you'll be hard-pressed to find it anywhere for under $4,000. As Aaron Goldfarb wrote in his Esquire article on the subject, now with Facebook, many newly minted bourbon fans could easily find like-minded obsessives to talk with, trade with, and sell bottles to in private groups like BSM and countless others. Post a pic of a sexy bottle, ask, oh, $500 or so, and wait a few seconds for a fellow group member to comment. And boom, you've just sold some whiskey. Of course, it should be noted here that private individuals reselling liquor is illegal in the United States. But it wasn't just private individuals getting in on the 
Pontiac, liquor store owners were also selling rare bottles in these groups. The rationale was, why put a $60 whiskey on a shelf for someone to buy and resell for $300 when they could do it themselves and quadruple their profit? By 2019, things had gotten so out of hand that the attorneys general of 46 states penned a letter to Facebook founder Mark Zuckerberg, which in part stated, we are aware of the occurrence of unlicensed, unregulated, and untaxed alcohol sales through digital platforms. Some of the products sold in this matter may be counterfeit, mislabeled, or fraudulent. The consumer may not know that this method of alcohol sales is illegitimate or that these black market products could pose health risks. Bad actors may exploit the anonymity of the digital platform to evade regulation, law enforcement, taxation, and responsibility. The 21st Amendment to the Constitution, as Ed alluded to earlier, firmly invests the right to regulate the sale of alcoholic beverages with each state. Each online content company operating within the United States has therefore a legal obligation to comply with federal and state law. Today, we call upon you to join us in this shared responsibility to protect our youth, the Constitution, and the integrity of the digital marketplace. Toward this goal, we ask your companies to undertake two initial steps to adjust this problem. Number one, review the current content posted on your company's websites and remove illegal postings for the sales and or transfer of alcohol products. And number two, develop and deploy programming to block and prevent your platform users from violating state law by posting content for the sale and distribution of alcohol products on your websites. And in fact, Facebook did just that. They started cracking down, shuttering the BSM group among several others during the summer of 2019. But as with anything this popular and lucrative, whisker groups popped back up as fast as they could be shut down, but this time getting more coy about their names, with members posting pictures of bottles in lieu of descriptions and indicating prices and a willingness to purchase by using code words and emojis, thus becoming exclusive clubs like the speakeasies of the past, where you had to be vouched by a current member or know the secret password to be let in. So today, the not-so-secret black market for whiskey is still alive and well, if better hidden, and its ramifications on the whiskey industry have become wide and far-reaching, influencing not only how distillers create and market their products, but also how distributors allocate them and how your local liquor store sets their pricing. Thanks, Scott. I belong to many Facebook bourbon appreciation groups, if you will. And right. the ones that I belong to, including South Jersey Bourbon Drinkers, mm-hmm. and Bourbon Sippers, and Philadelphia Whiskey Club, they're all very, very strict on the fact that if you mention selling or purchasing or anything like that, they will delete your profile yep. out of the group. They'll so kick you out. They're very, very strict, the ones that I'm in. But you're right. All they have to do is show something I have, and someone says, hey, where'd you get that? I'd love to have one. And then, boom, I private message them, mm-hmm. and then what happens is what happens. So, right. you know, social media, like you said, they can talk about anything. They can talk about cars. They can mm-hmm. talk about jewelry or, or collectibles of other natures, like baseball cards, stamps, I guess. Yeah, coins, dolls. Coins, dolls. Dolls, right. Beanie Babies. And then, dildos. I don't know what the market is on that. I mean, used dildos, I, I would think, would be a, a pretty down market. Yeah. Yeah. So um, is that your history? No. Uh, yeah, that was that was the history. All right. So yep. to just kind of put people in perspective of what we're talking about here, let's talk about how things are priced. Yeah. So let's use like a bottle of Wild Turkey 101. Sure. It usually retails around $27. Mm-hmm. So the markup from the producer to the distributor. So the distributor is going to mark it up about 25 to 30%. So they're going to take like like a $14, $15 bottle, and they're going to make it $18, $19 to when they sell it to the retail store. And then the retail store is going to buy it, and they're going to mark it up 25 to 30%. And then it's going to be around $25 to $27. Let's just say the example I've given. 
you know, you might go to one place and you see wild turkey 101 at 27. Might walk another place and see 29, 30. Mm-hmm. If you're seeing 32, 34, you know, like, wow, this is really high for this. Yeah. Now, that has a small range because it's a cheaper bottle. But when you get up to, like, a more expensive bottle, let's talk about, like, a Baker's. Uh, I've seen it at 64 and I've seen it at 78, right? Mm. But that's still kind of within the range. I don't really consider that gouging. Now, if the Baker's is 99, it's overpriced. And then yeah. you have to make the determination whether you want to buy it. So I would want you to say no to $99 Baker's, right. no to $160 Booker's, right. no to $300 Midwinter Drams. I want you to say no to these and find something else to drink. There's enough whiskey to drink where you don't have to sell your soul to the devil for a bottle. And then where it gets tricky with that, and I totally agree with everything you just said, when something like Baker's, because Baker's is everywhere, you know, if you have a big distillery yeah. and they distribute it everywhere, you can comparison shop. You can go to four or five liquor stores and probably at yeah. least four of those five are going to have Baker's yep. and they may be at different prices, but if one has it for 99, you go, fuck this, I'm going to go down right. the street where it's 65 yeah, and you go exactly. and you comparison shop. So you are voting basically with your right. wallet. right. It gets harder when something is allocated to only like one or two liquor stores and they're both really pricing it at $99. Then if you want Baker's, you kind of have to pay $99. Right. So the goal that Scott and I have been on recently is, and we're not the only ones, of course, but (laughs) what alternatives are out there? What are similar drinks that you can get more readily Yeah, that is more affordable? Or even if it's not crazily more affordable, I can just get it when I want it, you know? And that's going to come up on each episode. We're going to give people some examples of stuff you could drink instead of the stuff that either is unfindable or incredibly overpriced. Mm. And what really hurts, I think, is that there's a lot of novices who are entering the whiskey market in general, and they don't know better. Right. They're over-enthusiastic they hear it. and undereducated. Yeah. Right. They hear, oh, the, you know, Midwinter's Night's Dram. I hear that's the best thing High West has. Let me go get it. And it's two ninety nine, and they buy it. Like, wow, it's really special. Right. So, Again, and we've talked about uh, the, the Chivas Regal effect, where Chivas right. Regal doubled their prices to raise their cachet, and it worked because people do associate a higher price with higher quality. And that, of course, really isn't always the case. But to their credit, they're a 12-year product, and they stayed right where they were when they doubled it. So <laughs> yeah. if they're still at like $36. It's still one of the best bargains in the scotch market <laughs> now. true. But honestly, so once again, just to keep it in your mind, if you pull something up online and you see the MSRP is $80, that's including everything we just said. That means they've already marked it up 25 to 30%, mm-hmm. and then the store marked it up 25 to 30%, and it should be $80. So if you see it at 90 all right, you can say that each of the distributor and the store were at the upper reaches yeah, of the- uh, they, did, all right. they did 30, 35 each. Yeah, yeah. They, they pushed it a bit. If it's 80 MSRP and it's 90 hey, to me, that's capitalism. That depends where you live and all that. But if it's 450 geez, drink something else. Like, yeah. honestly, nothing is that unique. And there's a few products that I would disagree with myself on. I think Angel Envy Rye doesn't taste like anything else. If that's what you like, it's going to be hard to find a replacement that tastes mm. exactly like that. And yeah. it's about $90 a bottle. So if that goes to 140 I you, know. you're going to be hard-pressed to replace that because it has a very unique flavor profile. But let's say Knob Creek, for some reason, goes up to $75. Yeah. There are 10 other products I can tell you that you're going to have a nice drink with. Yeah. You know, you can have the Single Barrel for Rosa. You can have uh, Old Forester, 1910. You, I mean, we can go up and down. There's other things out there to have. And I think that we need to stop getting wrapped up in the social media hype of different products. So, oh, it won the double gold. How many things have won the double gold in San Francisco? Like, can I get in on that? <laughs> like, how many awards are there? Yeah, I know. Well, I'm going to tell you right now, our podcast just won the double gold at the San Francisco <laughs> Podcast Open. Uh, we are double gold in voice, double gold in humor. We're only a single gold in singing, as you may know. Uh, <laughs> 
<laughs> we are. <laughs> we are double gold in microphones. We are triple gold in editing, I'll say. <laughs> So there was a point in one of our earlier episodes that I ended up cutting because I wanted to save it for this particular episode Mm -hmm. where you went on a rant and it was a very good rant about price gouging at a a local liquor store of ours. I don't know if you want to name them by name at this point, but like what you think about their rationale for pricing things so high. Right. So I actually have spoken to some of the managers of stores. I don't come at them in a hostile way. I come at them and like, so where do you figure out how to price this? Yeah. And uh, one guy was just like, well, I just, you know, I just Google it online and whatever the prices are coming up, I just, you know, somewhere around there. So I pick it. Well, I'm like, that's a terrible way to do it because <laughs> online pricing, you can price it oh, for whatever you want. It doesn't yeah. mean that you're buying it. Another guy, he got really defensive. He's like, hey, man, it's capitalism. Mm. Hey, it's supply and demand. Mm-hmm. I got an Elmer T. Lee over here and I'm pricing it for three nine nine. If someone buys it, good for me. If you don't want to buy it, don't buy it. And he was really aggressive. And I was like, wow. I'm like, Okay, I won't. Right. Because <laughs> I bought Albert T. Lee for $58 five years ago. Yeah. And I'll be goddamned if I'm going to spend $400 to drink your bottle. But the arrogance of saying to people, hey, take it or leave it. Well, that's great. But, you know, I have to tell you, I read a piece from Breaking Bourbon, simply written by Nick. They're kind of like us. They go first name only, I guess. <laughs> and this was written about six years ago. Okay. And basically, what he said was basically... I'll just keep saying basically over and over again until I just <laughs> run into the ground. Basically, 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 basically. You know, he starts off by saying, we've all been there, right? You're at the liquor store. Your heart skips a beat. There's a special release you've been hunting for. And then you see the price and boom, suddenly realize why they have it. Mm. It's more than most people's paychecks and certainly multiple times MSRP. Right. So he talks about how when you get a bottle that's in high demand, the absolute least creative and worst possible way to deal with it is just marking the price way up. You could argue that simply supply and demand, like we said, Mm -hmm. and that the market commands the price. Often retailers need to jump through hoops and increase volume purchases with their distributors to even land a few of these limited release bottles. I mean, that's a whole other part of it. They have to sell thousands of dollars in vodkas and beers just to get the right to get the bottles that we all want so bad. So there is another side of that, and I'm not trying to discount that, and neither is Breaking Bourbon. But after doing all those efforts to get bottles, they certainly are entitled to make a profit. After all, it would be even less fair if a flipper made off with a profit instead of them, right? Right. He says he just hates the lack of creativity. If a retailer chooses this strategy, then I'm not going to waste time visiting during the year to get to know them or make my everyday purchases because at the end of the day, I'll never pay that much for bourbon. Exactly. And it lets me know that whenever they have a chance, they're going to try to gouge me. Mm-hmm. It's probably not worth a few extra bucks you may eventually get. You're probably pissing off your best customers, driving away business and foregoing shelf space for other products you could actually sell on a regular basis. Remember, you're in the business selling bourbon, not collecting it. There's a better approach. Spend some time getting to know your clients. Build up a mailing list. Do lotteries. Yeah. Use these bottles to build a loyal, repeating customer base. Expand your selection and price competitively to move product faster. Hold tasting events to promote sales and involve local distillers. More importantly, reward these loyal customers with an occasional highly sought-after bottle at MSRP. Right. I tell the story about the first time I walked into a local store, I'll name this one, the Mountie from Canals. I walked in and I'm a 10-year Henry McKenna bottle and bond fan. Yes. People know that. Yes. For years, I enjoyed it for $32, $33 from Heaven Hill. It's a great product. 
And uh, it won a couple awards, as I said, just like we did in San Francisco. We got we both <laughs> them and us both got double cold. Yeah, yeah. And um, we're the same. We, you know, you know, there was a whiskey podcast uh, section at the San Francisco. Nobody um, knew. No, no, not even them. Right. That's because <laughs> we're the only one in it. That's why we won. And so I walked into Mountie for the first time. People have been talking about how it's a good whiskey liquor store. Mm-hmm. As soon as I walk in, I see a Henry McKenna behind the counter on the shelf. So I'm expecting the worst. It was priced at thirty nine ninety nine. Ooh. Very but, cheap for now. Yeah. At a time when I know they easily could have put 59 on that and not even got any shade for it. Like, mm. I wouldn't even have shit on them if it was 59. 69. Right, well, 69, have I start to be like, now you're starting to gouge a bit. 79, but, 89. But, but they could have. They could have. Yeah. But in that one bottle, Mountie from Canals told me everything I need to know about them. Mm-hmm. They're not looking to screw me. They're going to make their money. They're going to price stuff competitively. They do a lot of store picks. Yeah. They do a lot of barrel picks. They work with the South Jersey bourbon drinkers. They're very cooperative. It's a great store. And it's a store that fully does what the article in Breaking Bourbon said. They work with their clientele. They're respectful. And thus, the clientele is respectful to them. Mm. I've never had a bad experience there. So that's just one store. I mean, people know that Benash and Cherry Hill is my right. favorite liquor store, but yeah. but that's why we talk right. about Benash a lot right. because they do all of those things too. And you see yeah. something that's a little bit rare, but like priced probably twenty dollars what the liquor store down the street is selling for. And as you said, right. that tells you everything you need to know about that liquor store that they're going to prioritize you and right. your your repeat business, right? Which is key, of course, for any business, right? You don't want to piss off your customers if you're right. charging double, triple the price. You might get that one sale, but you're going to piss off five people who are never going to come right. to your store again. Right. You know, I like Midwinter Night's Dram from High West. I might pay once, because I only get one bottle a year of that. I don't buy it a lot, you know, but I might I might overpay for that to like 130. Mm. I might. I shouldn't, but I might. <laughs> I've had it for 108. The, the problem is you. Right. I might, right. But I'm saying I might be... I know that's it's a natural impulse to want to pay for something that you really right. like. But let me ask you a question. What should it be? I think it should be a hundred. All right. But you've paid one oh nine half. I, I paid one oh nine. Right. Uh, that was for the podcast. Right. So I'm saying to walk into a place and see two ninety nine, that offends me. And that place has to understand that yeah. it offends me beyond that one bottle. Yeah. It offends me because they could sell me this at one twenty five and make money. But three hundred dollars to say, let me just put it up there and see if anyone's stupid enough to walk in and buy it. And somebody was or, going to be, but just like we've been saying, right. they pissed off you and me. We're never going to go back there. Right. Now, there's people out there where $300 is like $30 to you and me. Right. They're rich. We're yeah. not rich. No. They get what they want. I, I got money to burn. I want that bottle. I don't feel like driving anywhere else for it. I'm rich. I'm going to take that $300 bottle home with me. It's like $30 to me. Mm-hmm. I'm rich. Mm-hmm. Oh, look at me. I'm a swell. Swell. Yeah, but swell. That's what they used to call rich people back in the prohibition days. Oh, did they? Hey uh, there, fella. Hey. Are you, are you a swell? Hey, that guy's a swell. Look oh. at him. He's got his own car. Look at him. He's all swollen. Oh, my God. Look, they have forks. They're swells. <laughs> forks. <laughs> Do they have forks with two tines or three? <laughs> right. So, like, yeah, they might get it. So, the liquor store owner makes an extra $150 that day off that bottle, and he feels good about himself, but... The amount of whiskey that just Scott and I buy in a year, it goes into the thousands. And Mount Ephraim and Benash will get that money from us. Yeah, so I I think what we're saying is uh, one way to combat the secondary market is to engage with people on the primary market who are not being influenced by the secondary market and are are instead prioritizing their customers instead of quick profits. I just had a banner go by me on my computer from Fruit Bat. Oh, yeah. F-R-O-O-T Bat. Yeah, I've seen them. Eagle Rare, 10-year, $59.99. Yeah, that's bullshit. Uh, That's a no. That's $20 more than I want to pay for that, okay? But like just Benash, to go back to Benash a minute, they did a bunch of releases themselves 
And they produce something called the Weeder. Which we featured. Right. And they are high proof. They are very competitive with a George T. Stagg. Scott and I, just this week, we had uh, George T. Stagg. We did. Happy uh, 15 out of tasting. Happy 15, yeah. You know, the, the tasting wasn't free. I mean, we had to pay to get in there, and it was pricey, but what the price should be for tasting one of the Wellers and George T. Stag and a Pappy 15. Right. And food. We had food, too. Yeah. So it was a great experience. I definitely see what the hype was about the George T. Stag. It's delicious. Mm-hmm. Not worth $1,250, but <laughs> it's really nice. Um, Pappy 15, I was really underwhelmed by. Yeah. I would take a weeder any day of the week from Benash, any day of the week over Pappy 15. I, and I'd have to agree with you. And we're going to focus much more on Pappy in the third yeah. episode yeah. because, of course, they're the big one that everybody points to as being a problem and a symptom of this whole secondary market phenomenon. And, and for some reason, they've become the Mount Everest of bourbons, too. And I'm sure someone else is like, oh, yeah, I chase the 23. All right, maybe I do, bro. But listen, <laughs> listen, I'm going to take any of the weeders from Benash over the Pappy. Theirs are about $50 a bottle, and they're fire, bro. Yeah. All right? They're delicious. Yeah. And so if you're going to tell me I have to pay $3,000 for a Pappy 15 or $50 for a weeder, <laughs> right. I'm going to go for the weeder, and I'm going to buy every weeder's ever been made, all the weeders. I could buy all the weeders ever made for one bottle of Pappy. That's all I got to say. Yeah. So in the vein of recommending alternatives to higher-priced and or hard-to-get whiskeys, right. There's a bourbon that you may have noticed out there in the world that is highly allocated, expensive, and rare, and that's Kentucky Owl. Yeah, and being a whiskey guy, it took a couple years for me to finally keep looking up behind the counter and wondering, what the fuck is Kentucky Owl? Yeah. Because there it is for two ninety nine, three forty seven. dollars Every now and then, one will dip down below one fifty. You're like, maybe I'll see what the fuss is about. That's <laughs> right. So uh, I have a quick uh, description about what Kentucky Owl is, just to give everyone an idea of uh, who they are and why their prices are so high. And then we're going to give you a alternative that we have here tonight to taste. Good, Scott. Tell us all about it. <laughs> all right. This is from the Whiskey Wash. Charles Mortimer Deadman created Kentucky Owl Sour Mash Bourbon Whiskey in 1879 and saw it do well until Prohibition. Whatever. But soon after, when his warehouses mysteriously burned down. They always do. <laughs> possibly to cover up a barrel theft, Deadman never received payment for his lost whiskey and he never returned to distilling. But in 2014, Kentucky Owl Bourbon was revived by Mortimer's great-great-grandson, Dixon Deadman, by mingling sourced and aged stock poured back into new charred barrels and aged further. Batch 1 yielded about 1,300 barrel-proof bottles and Dixon knew it was good. But retailers saw something more in both the whiskey and the story of an historic brand literally rising from the ashes and priced it at $175 per bottle. Southern Cultural Magazine Garden and Gun took notice and regaled the spirit you could only buy in Kentucky with a prestigious Made in South award. But all the buzz surrounding this bourbon made owner-founder Dixon Deadman shake his head, saying, the whole time this is going on, I'm saying to my wife, what the hell is wrong with these people? <laughs> and claiming that what retailers do is out of his hands. In 2017, Dixon sold Kentucky Owl to the Stoley Group, staying on as Master Blender. But here's the thing. Not only are all Kentucky Owl whiskeys sourced from undisclosed distilleries, there are no mash bills available, and most of their expressions don't even have age statements. And yet, prices in liquor stores, as Ed was saying, for their newly released higher proof expressions are well north of $100, and their older batches goes for as much as $2,500 at online retailers. So who knows what the hell they're actually going for on the secondary market. Although, to be fair, and possibly to quell the outcry about their prices, they did recently release a $60 90 proof bourbon expression. 
So, of course, even if we were inclined to get a bottle of the high-end stuff, we probably wouldn't even be able to get one for anywhere near the price what we're willing to pay. So instead, we looked up alternatives, and what came up early and often was Bellmead Reserve Bourbon. Right, so the Kentucky Owl, the only one Scott and I have ever had yeah. is one of their lower expressions, which is confiscated. Yeah. And it was good. Um, it's $125 a bottle. Okay. Around there. Yeah. And if you can get that and you want to try Kentucky Owl, that's the way to go. Is it overpriced? Yes. Yeah. Yes, it is. Yeah. I compare it to the smoke wagon. Mm. Uncut, unfiltered. Mm-hmm. Favorably, in the sense of the flavor profile is very deep. It's very delicious. Yeah. It's a well-done bourbon. It's well-blended. And that's sourced as well. Yeah, it is sourced, mm-hmm. um, but a lot of things are sourced and not as good as Kentucky Owl confiscated, which makes me believe that the ones I haven't tried are probably pretty good. But once again, $300 good? <laughs> what makes it $300 good? And I have a huge problem with that. Exactly. You know, I feel bad almost for um, Johnny Walker Blue. Like, Johnny Walker Blue is a good scotch, but every novice asshole with, <laughs> you know, $150 in their pocket that wants to impress their friends goes out and buys a damn box of Johnny Walker Blue and then tries to offer it to me at their house as if they're doing something. <laughs> like, if that's all they really have to offer you, it's so transparent that they're just trying to be one of the cool kids. Yeah, because it's got a certain cachet and they feel yeah. good about it. And it's oh, yeah. You have, have you, hey, have you, had the, have you had the blue? Hey, have you ever had the blue? Yeah. Oh, I got Johnny Walker Blue. You haven't had that? Yeah, dude. I've had it and... It's okay. Right. A gun to my head. I think I'd rather have Shiva's Regal 12 year. Oh, well, yeah. You know, than for the $36 than, than the blue, you know? <laughs> so. So, yeah, so we're going to try the Bellmead Reserve Bourbon. I have a, just a short description that I think the reason why the lists that we saw online that saying this was a good alternative to the Kentucky Owl, and you'll <laughs> hear some similarities in the description. Yeah. So, originally founded in the late 1800s. The first Bellmead bourbon was one of around 30 different labels of bourbon produced by Nelson's Greenbrier Distillery in Greenbrier, Tennessee, manufactured in cooperation with the owners of Bellmead Horse Plantation, whose horse bloodlines would include Seabiscuit, Man o' War, Secretariat, and others. The bourbon gained a reputation for being a solid and economical choice for local drinkers. When Prohibition came to Tennessee... <laughs> in 1909, the distillery stopped production and ended the brand... In 2015, Bellmead was resurrected by brothers Andy and Charles Nelson's descendants of the original founders after they stumbled upon the remains of their family's old distillery while traveling to a butcher shop back in 2006. I wish I could just stumble on my family's distillery. I know. Hey, I was cleaning out the back shed, and you know what, Scott? I, there's a distillery out there. There's a distillery with their name oh on it. Oh, my God. I should have noticed it. Like three giant rickhouses out there. I didn't know what they were. I mean, God, that's if my family had any wealth at all. Thanks, Mom and Dad, for being poor as shit, worthless. Oh, my God. That is so extra. Your parents are dead. Right. So they're even less help now than when they were alive and poor. <laughs> oh. Wow. All right. So. um, Love you, Mom. <laughs> sourcing from MGP. Their bourbons are blended in tiny four-barrel batches featuring two mash bills and two different yeast strains, after which the liquid is transported to the Bellmead facility, where it's placed in charred oak barrels and aged for between six and eight years. The mash bill is undisclosed, but I was able to find out that in those two mash bills that they use from MGP, it aggregates to 64% corn, 30% rye, and 6% malted barley. The proof is 108.3. The age is at least eight years. The prices varies from like 60 to 75. I paid the 75 because we were doing this podcast, but still, that's four times cheaper than the Kentucky Owl at 300. Right, the MSRP is 60. I saw it for a long time at 64, 65 dollars. Yeah. It's recently bumped up about 10 above that. It did. Since the summer. Yeah. 
So you said you paid seventy four. Seventy four ninety nine. You still can find this for sixty six, sixty eight dollars. You can some places. Scott honestly didn't leave himself a lot of time. To I bought get it today, it. and it was. <laughs> and, and, and this and, comes out Thursday. Right. And so. You, and so we looked at the next closest liquor store. It was the same price. It goes, "Fuck it, I'm just going to buy it." Right, I did. But um, this is 108 proof, 108.3. So we're going right, to we're so, going to sniff it. So we're in the, we have it in the neat glass, right? We have the caps on with a swirl. You don't put any water in it when you first taste it neat glass because it uh, the scientific term is it fucks everything up. <laughs> it ceases all evaporation. Hmm. I mean, it's pretty traditional. Baking. Yeah, I'm tasting. I get some cinnamon though. Oh, do you? Okay. Maybe a little tobacco-y actually on the smell too. Oh, interesting. Definitely spicy. I get rye. Right, because it has a rye mash bill. High rye mash bill. Yeah, thirty percent. I mean, I'm smelling like, like you know dark fruits and um, caramel. Let me find out what the uh, breaking bourbon said. The nose is full of rich, warm flavors of cinnamon, baking spice, rye syrup, spice syrup. What's a spice syrup? I don't know. Uh, <laughs> these are combined with a heavy punch of ethanol. See, we didn't have a heavy punch of ethanol. Right. I mean, it is 108. Yeah. It You're going to get some. Yeah. Wow. This really is a nice nose. All right. Let me go back again. Let's taste it now. Yeah, I'm getting a little bit of uh, vanilla and citrus. Like, there's nothing really different bourbon-wise of this. It's a very straightforward smelling bourbon. Right. Now, taste it, though. Wow. It's so good. Oh. There's so much going on here. Like, what a dense flavor profile this has oh it has a nice finish holy damn that is so caramel is so like you, yeah. you you taste slight things of caramel on some bourbons but the caramel flavor of this it, it's like i ate a caramel yeah it does have a nice rye spice to it mm. this is, this is wow. quite good this is really oh i'm getting a little chocolate i had like in my throat after i'm swallowing and this is why you need to not abandon a brand scott and i had the regular bell mead the 30 nine dollar one yeah over the summer or sometime yeah it was picked it up we grabbed it we drank it eh, it was okay there was nothing wrong with it but it was nothing to write home about yeah so when i went in the store and i would see the bell mead reserve for 65 i'm like nah yeah, i'm not gonna do it yeah i have other stuff that i like i'll I was, go buy a baker's when baker's is dips down to 66 i was the same right. way and honestly when this came up as an alternative to the right. kentucky out and i'm like oh really <laughs> but it came up in like multiple lists and i'm like okay maybe we should give it a shot right so the bell mead reserve um what are you tasting do you have notes up there i do have some notes from uh, but, but tell me what you taste before you read the notes 31 whiskey.com which is incidentally who i got the description from um like i said a, a little bit of a chocolate at the end i get the taste as if i've eaten a little bit of chocolate but also the caramel is still there like chocolate caramel is like this is fucking delicious this is really good wow. this is so so much going on you said cinnamon earlier, right? Yes. Yeah, they, there's yeah. definitely some cinnamon on this. Yeah. Um, they say baked apple pie on my taste. I don't take baked I, apple I, pie. I don't take apple pie at all. No. I'll be honest with you. No. But guess what they have on mine? A touch yeah. of caramel okay. and plump raisins. And I definitely still taste dark fruits all through Raisins, this. yes. If you said dark cherries, I wouldn't be mad. Uh, if you want to say uh, raisins, I'm right there with you. Oh, wow. Okay. So I'll read my notes from 31whiskey.com. Palette yeah. dark chocolate, toffee, caramel, and char. Finish long and more dark chocolate, black pepper, and rice spice. Yeah. All of it. So what we're trying to get through with this exercise is you're standing there and you feel bad about yourself because like, I want to try the $300 Kentucky Owl. Yeah. So we'd say just make a right, go down the aisle and get the $65 or the $75 Bell Mead. You're saving hundreds of dollars. And listen, to those who want to not be part of the debacle, find other things to drink. The Bell Mead Reserve is an uptick already at $70. Yeah. But it's not 300 Right. So if you're feeling cheated, if you're like, oh, I want to take Kentucky out too. Well, fuck Kentucky out. How about that? 
How about Go Drink Bellmead Reserve? They're both sourced. Yeah. They're both aged well and handled well by their respective companies, except one of them wants you to actually drink it, and one of you wants to just look at it in the case. <laughs> right. right. Kentucky, I want you to view them at the top shelf behind the counter of most liquor stores, yeah. while Bellmead will come home with you and be your friend. Right. So they're so similar in origin story that they both source and then finish in extra toasted barrels for a period of time right. that I don't know why you would yeah. buy the Kentucky Owl over this because right. this is terrific. If you don't like this, please email us at whiskeytangent at gmail.com and tell us why you don't like Bellmead Reserve. Don't tell us that you don't like it. Just tell us that you like Kentucky Owl better. And, and tell why. us why. Yeah. Tell us why it's better. This has been a treat. I've never had the reserve till this moment. We get really lucky sometimes. Right, well, really, we pretended that we went to the liquor store looking for Kentucky Owl, who didn't want to pay two hundred dollars, yeah, or even one twenty nine, right? And turned around and bought the Bell Mead and came home. And guess what? Yeah, yeah. But are they three times as good as this, mm-hmm. or four times as good as this? Mm-hmm. I can't believe it could be possibly four times as good as this. No. So, so if you're a you know a trillionaire, then buy whatever you want. But if you're like me and Scott and you drink a lot. <laughs> Yeah. So the price per ounce matters to you. Yes. Bellmead Reserve bourbon, a whiskey you can actually take home and the one that you can enjoy. You could drink four of these bottles for any of the Weller Antique Collection. Right. And thus thwart the secondary market. Mm-hmm. So thank you for joining us on part one of our whiskeymentary about the secondary market. Stay tuned for part two, where we will be diving deeper into the secondary market to include not only person-to-person sales that we talked about today, but also auctions and even whiskey investing. Hopefully, we'll get to talk to Anders because he has a lot to say. And you're going to be surprised how screwed over the bars are, especially during COVID, as people stayed mm. home and didn't go out. Y'all. Everybody's darling became a liquor store, right? Lord knows I did. Mm. That was my whole social life, going to a liquor store three times a week. <laughs> right. How you doing, Bill? Hey, Betty. How you doing? What do you got? I oh, got Eagle Rare. And fuck yeah. Give me the Eagle Rare. <laughs> <laughs> fuck yeah. <laughs> and there may be a chance that I bring up um, the scarcity of the Buffalo Trace products. Uh, <laughs> no, which, no, we will. I'm sure that's that will happen. Uh, I mean, everybody's <laughs> been hit by this phenomenon, but no one, mm-hmm. no one has been sideswiped, devastated by the scarcity of the product line as Buffalo Trace has. They make good product, but it's like a myth. They're like the Bigfoot of whiskey. <laughs> like they run behind two trees. You're like, what was that? Oh, this foolproof Weller. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But anyway, listen, part two, it's yes. going to be fascinating. We're really going to get deep into it. We're going to bring people in. We want to get all parts of the three-tier system represented. Hopefully we talking. can. Yes. Hopefully we can. Yeah. If not, we'll just, you know, make it up and say we did. But <laughs> I'll just do different voices. All right, I'm, 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 I own a distillery. All right. Cheers, everybody. And happy new year. Happy new year. <laughs>